Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. As the state enters its third year of drought, Governor Gavin Newsom has ordered water districts to increase water restrictions. It's Newsom's most aggressive conservation move so far. But are statewide mandatory water cutbacks coming? Cutbacks enforced with fines? Well, don't bet on it, says KQED science editor Kevin Stark. The governor compelled local water districts to find more savings. That could mean upping conservation targets and limiting outdoor watering. The order also asked state regulators to consider a ban on watering decorative lawns at commercial and institutional properties. The order will impact millions of Californians, but exactly how will only become clear in the coming weeks as local agencies respond. And that's the whole point, said Natural Resources Secretary Wade Crowfoot. You know, these local water agencies know best what actions they need to take to improve conservation. During California's last major drought, the state mandated water cuts with a penalty for cities that didn't meet the target. The administration has resisted doing that during this drought, saying the one-size-fits-all strategy doesn't work well in California. For The California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. Republicans' efforts to suspend the state's gas tax have failed following a committee hearing in Sacramento yesterday. The proposal from Republican Assemblyman Kevin Kiley would have zeroed out the state's 51 cents per gallon gas tax for six months. But Democrats in the Assembly gutted the bill, instead calling for a gas tax hike on oil producers. GOP lawmakers have argued that suspending the tax would provide more immediate relief from skyrocketing gas prices than Governor Newsom's latest proposal, offering $400 rebate checks. But Democrats say there's no guarantee the savings would be passed on to consumers. How toxic have American politics and elections become? This much. A bill has been introduced in the state legislature that would add some election workers and their families to California's Safe at Home program. Similar to the victims of domestic abuse, that would allow the election workers to keep their home addresses strictly confidential. According to the Brennan Center, one in six election officials across the country have experienced some kind of threat, especially during and after the contested 2020 presidential election when Trump supporters protested and expressed outrage at election officials over false claims of vote rigging. The state assembly has voted to extend pandemic eviction protections for tenants still waiting on rent relief. How big is that problem? Well, fewer than half of the nearly 500,000 people who've applied for rental assistance have yet to receive a payout. KQED's Aaron Baldessari reports. Currently, tenants who've applied for rent relief but are still waiting on payments could be evicted as early as April 1st. The state assembly voted 60 to 0 on a bill to delay those evictions through the end of June, allowing more time for payments to go out. 
The bill's co-author, Democratic Assemblymember Tim Grayson of Concord, said it would hurt both tenants and landlords to let those protections expire now. It would be cruel. It would be wasteful and unfair to subject Californians to eviction or the loss of rental income now when they have done everything that they have been asked. The bill now heads to the state Senate for a vote before it can be signed by the governor. For the California Report, I'm Aaron Baldessari. The COVID pandemic has taken the lives of nearly 10,000 nursing home residents and staff in our state. To honor them and to press for better working conditions, several dozen unionized long-term care workers held a vigil yesterday in the rain at the state capitol building in Sacramento. KQD's Sarah Hosseini has more. Ray Buswell. We work at Granada in Eureka. We lost 12 residents. One by one, the group of mostly women of color in plastic rain ponchos lay white carnations on a table in honor of a coworker, patient, or sometimes family member that succumbed to COVID. Caring for the elderly and infirm in skilled nursing facilities or patients' homes is already low-paid and back-breaking work, they say. But COVID and extreme understaffing brought many to their breaking point. Probably the saddest thing that I've ever seen is when they're passing and their family's not with them and they're asking for them and you're there every step of the way and then you go home and you take that home with you because you love them and you care about them. They become your family. Sonora-based certified nursing assistant Kelly Oppenheim says she's thought about leaving. Fast food workers in her town make more than most of her colleagues. She's hoping that a push to create a skilled nursing facility quality standards board could boost wages and staffing and improve the quality of care, something she thinks will benefit patients and staff alike. SCIU 2015 says that one in 10 of its members have left the industry over the past two years, and half of those who remain say they're likely to follow. Union leaders are also calling for an end to COVID-era staffing ratio waivers. For the California Report, I'm Sarah Hosseini in Sacramento. Maybe like me, you've crossed a street a time or two or way more at a place where it's prohibited. Well, jaywalking could become legal in many circumstances in California if a bill introduced yesterday in the state legislature is passed. The measure by San Francisco Assemblyman Phil Ting would allow pedestrians to cross streets outside of crosswalks unless doing so creates an imminent danger of a collision. Ting says even though most people jaywalk from time to time, studies show police disproportionately proportionally issue tickets to people of color. Jason Saris of Novato, who described himself as currently homeless, told legislators he felt targeted for his street crossing habits. When I was cited in 2017, there were no cars nearby. The truth is the officer didn't stop me for jaywalking. He stopped me because I looked out of place. I had some bags with me. It was obvious that I was homeless. Sarah says if homeless people don't pay jaywalking fines, they risk losing their driver's licenses. The chair of the Assembly Transportation Committee, Laura Friedman, said she supports the bill in part because she jaywalks sometimes around the state capitol at night. Where I feel a lot safer crossing when I can see for miles that there's no cars around, but I'm a woman walking by myself in downtown Sacramento, and I'd rather just keep moving. So there's really good reasons why sometimes pedestrians are safer by using their common sense. Ting's bill was passed out of committee, but it faces opposition from law enforcement groups. Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill last year that would have repealed jaywalking laws altogether. Ting hopes this more targeted version will make it into law. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. A federal judge in Santa Ana is ordering a controversial California legal scholar to turn over documents to the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrectionist riot at the U.S. Capitol. KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer has more. John Eastman was a law professor at Chapman University in Orange County when Rudy Giuliani invited him to speak at a Stop the Steal rally in Washington, D.C., hours before the assault on the U.S. Capitol. Eastman called on Vice President Mike Pence to send election results back to several states Joe Biden had legitimately won. So we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. Soon after that, the law school and Eastman parted ways. But the House committee investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the legitimate 2020 election results is demanding documents, including emails Eastman sent from his work computer at the university to Trump and his collaborators. Eastman sued to block the release, claiming attorney-client privilege. But federal judge David O. Carter said the privilege doesn't apply when the communications are intended to commit a crime and that Eastman and Trump were likely trying to commit a felony. The decision in so many ways is stunning. That's Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. What's stunning about it, she says, is Judge Carter's suggestion that the former president was likely involved in illegal activity. Criminal conduct that would lead to thwarting the peaceful transfer of power, that he tried to undermine an election, and that he really tried to implement a self-coup. In his 44-page decision, Judge Carter said the nation was founded on the peaceful transfer of power, something Eastman and Trump were trying to upend. The ruling is seen as a significant breakthrough for the House committee, which will recommend to the U.S. Department of Justice whether or not to investigate Trump's actions around the 2020 election. Monday's decision can be appealed, so it could be months before the documents are released. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. A new UCLA report shows that a year after a sweep of homeless camps around Echo Park Lake in Los Angeles, most of the unhoused who were uprooted haven't found permanent housing. Even more concerning, many have fallen off the map of the city's homeless department and are no longer being tracked. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi spoke with one of the report's authors, Ananya Roy, about the findings. You and some of your colleagues have just come out with research on the clearing of the large homeless encampment 
at Echo Park Lake last year. The sweep was very controversial. There was a large police presence and arrests were made. What were some of the most important findings from your research as to what's happened since that sweep? Yes, thank you for your interest in this work. So Echo Park Lake is a public park in a gentrifying neighborhood of Los Angeles, close to downtown. Um, During the pandemic, it became home to an unhoused community that had otherwise been abandoned. And that community was brutally and violently displaced um, about a year ago, including through um, a police force of 400 militarized officers. Now, while these sorts of sweeps have become commonplace, the Echo Park Lake displacement gave us all pause, and that is what led to our year-long research project, because the politicians who instigated that sweep also promised that all displaced residents will be in stable, permanent housing within a year. Well, the year is up. So our ethnographic data, we followed 84 displaced residents for a year. And out of those 84, only four are in any form of housing and two of them really through community support. Seven have passed away. And so more people have passed away than have been housed. Your report also found that a lot of the people who were displaced during the sweep have found their way back to the streets and are often in a more dangerous situation. Can you talk a little about the community and bond that many unhoused people form in these encampments? Yes. So I will say, look, I'm a scholar of urban poverty and inequality. I've been doing research on these issues for a very long time. And in that work, I've been very careful not to romanticize poverty and not to romanticize slums and squatter settlements and homeless encampments. But it is also crucial as a researcher to understand how a place and community functions. And the community did a few things. One, they created their own rules. So there were very specific rules about keeping each other safe, about how drug use could not take place in community spaces. And if someone was in fact using drugs, it had to be inside a tent. How a lot of people fleeing gendered violence actually found refuge. They created a community kitchen and community garden. Now, all of this was demolished, but also we find a lot of evidence of how the police department, the increasingly militarized park rangers, NIMBY groups, and anti-poor politicians all deliberately targeted and criminalized the encampment, especially black unhoused organizers who were leading some of this community building work. So I think that in many ways, what we see in Echo Park Lake is almost a prefiguration of the sorts of supportive housing environments that people need in order to move out of homelessness. And yet it's precisely those communities and systems that unfortunately are being criminalized and torn down. I know there's no simple answer to homelessness in California, but do you think there are lessons we can take from the report by you and your colleagues on ways to get people who are unhoused into some type of permanent housing that gives them a better future? Yes, absolutely. So the final chapter of our report on our deep conversations with unhoused comrades have been very much about what is to be done. Look, I mean, our the research center I direct was one of the first in the country to sound the alarm on the evictions to come. Eviction moratoria ending, 
California is on the brink of a massive evictions crisis with black and brown tenants carrying massive amounts of rental debt. We have to keep people in their homes and we have to address the wage rent gap. Second, we have to abolish the criminalization of poverty and the criminalization of homelessness. Um, our liberal cities are going in just the opposite direction. In LA, we've expanded our anti-camping laws, really yoking police enforcement to these so-called offers of housing. And this is very troubling. Um, I'm very worried about Governor Newsom's proposal for the care courts. Uh, while he claims it is not a conservatorship, that's precisely what it is for the unhoused who are being stripped of their civil rights and their constitutional rights. And I think also we've got to recognize that while vouchers can be helpful, we've got to tackle race and income discrimination in housing markets. And one of the only ways of doing that is actually serious public investment in social housing. Now, again, this is a time of plenty. This is not a time of austerity. And so, in fact, all of this is very much possible. Again, that was the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi speaking with UCLA's Ananya Roy about a new report on the fates of unhoused people who were cleared from a homeless encampment around LA's Echo Park Lake. And that, listeners, is the California Report for Tuesday, March 29th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. As always, thanks so much for listening and have a good day. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Personal Capital helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. 
This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Happy reading!